Hello, Marvelites. Welcome to a very special, unnumbered edition of This Week in Marvel, our official Marvel podcast, because we're celebrating Kirby Week. It would be Jack Kirby's 98th birthday this week, and uh, we're doing some fun stuff on the website and and celebrating all around. And uh, we thought, why don't we bring in the man who knows... Pretty much everything about Marvel, if you ask me. Uh, Peter Sanderson, uh, Marvel historian, author, uh, st- former staffer, and as you've been, if you're a listener to the show, you know he's been on the show many times talking about all things Marvel. So we wanted to bring in Peter to talk about Jack and his history, his legacy, and fun anecdotes and little bits and pieces. Uh, so welcome, Peter. Glad to be here once again. Uh, well, first, where before Jack even got to Marvel, which would have been what timely at the time, right? Right. Uh, before he even started here, what was what was Jack doing? Well, he was be- he was being born, uh, <laughs> uh, growing up on the Lower East Side of New York near Delancey Street, which g- turned into Yancey Street in the Fantastic Four comics, and apparently it was uh, he did did a. Um, story late in his life called Street Code, I believe, which is about growing up in that period. It was a sort of like, it was uh, during the Great Depression. It was uh, it was a section of New York where people lived in tenements, very, very impoverished area. It's sort of like, think of Hell's Kitchen and the Daredevil books, but think of it worse. <laughs> and he actually, and he, when he was growing up, he wasn't a member of a gang, but, but there were gangs I, there, there were people he knew who grew up to be gangsters. He had to. Uh, he w- was engaged in fighting on the streets. I've seen people observe that, uh, like the Hulk and the Thing, are like these characters who are autobiographical for Kirby because they've got this inner rage mm-hmm. because he had to. F- he really had to fight his w- way to uh, to get along back then on the, on the streets of New York. But anyway, but he, by all accounts, despite all this, he turned into this, he became this really nice guy who apparently uh, always thought the best of pe- people when he met them, unless, until and unless they proved him wrong. <laughs> and it's, um, he, uh, and he had this talent for art. He went to the Pratt Institute, an art school in New York City, but only for a week. Only a week. He, he didn't like it. He didn't like what the because they didn't want to teach him the kind of art he wanted to do. He uh, worked for a so he ended up working for a the Lincoln Newspaper Syndicate, where he was doing one panel cartoons and he was doing newspaper comic strips. And from there, and I think this is this may be more significant than a lot of people think, but he w- went to the Max Fleischer Animation Studios, which were near Times Square where he was an in-betweener. An in-betweener is you have, back then you had animators who would do like the main poses for a character in a sequence, and the in-betweener would fill in the drawings in between. And But he was working on the Popeye cartoons. <laughs> and doesn't this make sense? Mm-hmm. But he only stayed there for a few months in a combination of labor troubles that were beginning to emerge at the company and the fact that he didn't like, he thought it was like a factory. He didn't like having to do this you know, turn out the same, you know, picture of Popeye moving like another inch sure. over and over and over. So he ended up, um, well, there are two things. He, uh, he, he did work for the Eisner Iger studio, right? um, Eisner being Will Eisner, and there was, um, which was packaging, 
which was doing stories that they would supply to comic book publishers, this brand new thing, the, the comic book. And there is a story that Eisner would tell in interviews, and also he fictionalized it in his graphic novel, in one of his graphic novels um, about his early days as a cartoonist, in which um, the Eisner Iger studio was trying to cancel their towel service for their men's room, apparently. <laughs> and they didn't like the service they were getting, and this tough guy came to the offices. So there's this big tough guy who, who Eisner describes as looking like sort of like your movie gangster, uh-huh. and he's leaving little doubt that he really was sort of gang con- gangster-connected. And he's trying to pressure Eisner into, you know, don't drop the contract if you know what's good for you. And Kirby, who was really short but really feisty and tough from growing up on, this, on the real-life Yancey Street, comes in and tells this guy off and forces the, forces the gang-connected guy to d- retreat. So that's pretty impressive. Don't mess with Jack. Don't mess with Kirby. And, uh, but more importantly... Kirby, around this time, uh, formed a, a partnership with Joe Simon, another one of the founding fathers of the comics industry, and they started working on a strip called Blue Bolt, and they became a team. And what happened was that 1939 is when publisher Martin Goodman started Timely Comics, um, because comics was suddenly hot after this guy with the red cape uh, had debuted the year before and mm-hmm. became this huge nationwide hit. And Goodman wanted to get in on the action. And at first he was outsourcing. Like Marvel Comics number 1, that stuff was... He had outsourced the work. He bought it from studio, studio. So Everett and Carl Burgos were working for a, for a studio. But then he deci- Goodman decided he wanted to have a staff of his own to produce comics. And he ended up hiring Joe Simon to be Marvel's first editor and Jack Kirby to become the first art director. And together, these guys created a number of early series for Marvel, the original Vision. Mm. You have um, Kirby doing series like Mercury and Hurricane. (laughs) And these were about super-powered gods who who walk among mortals. Mm-hmm. And so you see this theme that you associate so much with Kirby books through the decades yeah. was starting even back then. But of course, the big thing, <clears throat> even though Simon and Kirby were only at Timely for about a year, the big thing that they did, of course, was create Captain America. Of course. Who came out because as their, because as their reaction to what was going on in Europe with Hitler's march to power and... You know, it was already World War Two had already started over there. They wanted to use Captain America to alert the public against the Nazi menace to argue for American involvement in fighting against him. And the book came out right before Pearl Harbor. Mm. And it was apparently apparently not only famous but controversial, somewhat controversial in its time because they act Simon and Kirby actually got death threats from. <laughs> Uh, German sympathizers. That's as a result can you of that imagine? book. My gosh! And how did they deal? How did they deal with those death threats? I think there's there's a fun anecdote that I had heard um, about Fiorella Laguardia, sort of backing them up and saying, "We'll take care of you." Guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, which shows? I mean, 
Mayor LaGuardia is one of the things he's most is famous for is for being a comics aficionado. <laughs> there was a newspaper strike during his, while he was mayor, and LaGuardia actually got on the radio and would read comic com, the daily comic strips to people over the air so they wouldn't miss them because <laughs> of the strike. You can actually go on YouTube and see see film of him reading from Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie. And so, you know, comics were in 1941-1942, you know, already making a big enough impact that the mayor of New York was paying attention to them. That's incredible. So they get these death threats. Um, do they persevere? Where did where does Jack go from there? What's, what's well, the well, they did. Well, they did persevere. They kept on doing, doing it. They kept on doing, uh, you know, ten issues of Cap, the first ten issues of Captain America. And I should mention that they were aided and abetted and exasperated somewhat by their young assistant who was hired, one Stanley Lieber, mm -hmm. who was only a teenager, and uh, would apparently play the flute in the office, and Jack apparently didn't like that. <laughs> uh, ruined his concentration. Simon and Kirby also were sort of like, even though they were on staff at Marvel, a timely, they were still dabbling with work on the outside. They did some Captain Marvel stories for Fawcett, the uh, original Captain Marvel. Sure, sure, sure the, the Shazam and, character. Right. And, and more importantly, they started doing some work for DC, or, what, or the companies that became DC. Right. And Goodman did not like this, so Goodman and Simon and Kirby came to the parting of ways. Simon and Kirby went over to DC, well, they did series like The Guardian of the Newsboy Legion and The Sandman, no, not the Neil Gaiman version, uh, but a superhero version, Manhunter. And, um, and uh, Goodman was looking around. It sort of reminds me of, like, if any of you know, like, I, Claudius, when the Roman Emperor Caligula gets assassinated, people looking around for somebody to replace him, and they find the first royal family member that they find is Claudius hiding <laughs> behind a curtain, and so, oh, well, let's make him the emperor. Uh, well, it's sort of like Martin Goodman is looking around, he says, oh, he got to be edited. No, you, stand, you do it. And, you know, until we find somebody better, which, of course, he didn't for the next 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. That's incredible. So, um, let's see, so, stand. Simon and Kirby were doing working for DC and turning up, being very successful there, and getting their names on the comics back then at a time when the comics were done pretty much anonymously. Sure. And but because of World War II, they both ended up in the army, where, as did Stan, but and Jack apparently they found out he could draw. They made him a reconnaissance artist, huh. which meant that he landed on Omaha Beach two and a half months after D-Day, okay. and his job was to be this advanced scout and go looking for German artillery placements and draw maps showing where they were. In other words, going into enemy territory. Whoa. So it was, like, really dangerous. Yeah. And also, it was really cold because he actually got the severe case of frostbite and nearly had to have his legs oh amputated. But he did recover. He was sent back stateside. Did, uh, do we know if any of his drawings were, were saved? Are they, you know, are they... I have, I have yet to see any of mm. his reconnaissance drawings, and although unless I'm just forgetting some that are, 
you know, I think they would have turned up in Mark Evanier's invaluable book mm -hmm. about Jack Kirby or in the Jack Kirby Collector magazine, both of which I recommend. Yeah. Uh, I, I think if they existed, they'd show up there. Sure. They would have shown up there. I don't remember ever seeing them, but it's um, after the war, Silent Kirby are back, and they are doing um, working for DC. Instead, they're, and by, you know, after the war, superheroes seemed to have become this fad, and was, as I've explained before, and it was dying dying off, so that by 1950, apart from the big three over at DC, they were all gone. Mm. And, but comics were moving into other genres to compensate, and so Simon and Kirby are credited as the creators of the romance comics genre. And they were also doing, we're starting with their book Young Love, mm -hmm. which is like so much Kirby work these days, is available in reprint. Yes. And you've also got, they were also do, doing crime comics, they were doing supernatural comics like Black Magic, they, they dabbled in some horror comics, although I understand Kirby was not all that fond of the horror genre, having seen so much, apparently having seen so much death sure. during the war. Uh, and they would turn, you know, uh, Kirby himself and a lot of Kirby and Nash aficionados think very highly of the Boys Ranch series that they did mm -hmm. back then. And um, a lot of this stuff was being done through for a company called Crestwood. Oh, and there was Fighting American, who started out as sort of like a variation Captain America and became this weird parody book. Really? And um, there was... Um, and briefly... Uh, Kirby returned to Marvel in the mid '50s. Before we get to that, was a lot of those projects you were mentioning? Was that was Kirby drawing, writing, plotting? Like what, These, well, everything I mentioned up from Blue Bolt up through now, what I've been just been talking mm -hmm. about is stuff he does in collaboration with in Joe collaboration Simon. I think Jack. maybe right. some of the Golden Age superhero stuff, apart from Cap, he might have done on his own. Mm -hmm. But um, but. Uh, and from what I understand, it was such a close collaboration. I would say that Kirby probably did most of the drawing, but Simon sometimes did drawing too. Mm -hmm. And Simon tended to do the inking. Simon tended to do the writing, but the stories were being plotted to, by Simon and Kirby. Right. And again, there's no records of who really yeah, did yeah, what. Yeah. what. Um, so, but it was a very close and friendly and collaboration that lasted quite a long time. Sure. So at one point in the mid-50s, um, Kirby went back to Tiny, which by now was Atlas Comics, and he did, uh, th just briefly, he worked in a western called The Black Rider, and a character that more people will remember now, The Yellow Claw. He didn't create The Yellow Claw, but he did a couple of issues afterwards, and then he left again. Um, he and Simon put together their own company called Mainline to produce com comics, you know, much like the Eisner Iger Studio mm -hmm. had done. However, this is the 50s. You've got Dr. Frederick Wertham and the government clamping down on comics, claiming that they caused juvenile delinquency. The comic book industry goes through a crisis. Hundreds of people le end up losing their jobs, never to come back to comics, and Mainline wasn't doing all that well. And Simon decided to go into advertising, so basically the, Simon and Kirby had this amicable parting of the ways. Kirby started doing some stuff for DC, 
including challenges of the unknown. Sure. And this is the late fifties. This is the late fifties, uh-huh. um, which apparently he wrote Andrew, mm-hmm. and worked on Green Arrow, which he apparently plotted Andrew, and but the, and then he got a comic strip to do. Um, called um, what was it? Um, now I'm forgetting the name of the strip, but it was a science fic- science fiction strip. I'm sorry, it's Sky Masters, which actually sounds like it could be somebody's name <laughs> that he worked on with Wally Wood, and and this was you know this was really good because comic books, especially out in the fifties, were being considered this gutter medium. Uh, whereas the big time was comic strips because mm. they were newspapers. People who did comic strips, if they were successful enough, they became rich and famous, and they were read by adults. And so, Sky Masters was like in newspapers, syndicated, right. and all that. Okay. And by this point, the comics industry was in such a state that after what had happened in the fifties, that basically. You had two choices. You worked for DC or you worked for Atlas. And Kirby, Kirby felt that his, the only possibility for him really was to go back to Atlas Marvel. Sure. And so he did, and he, uh, and he ended up doing, all, also, again, all sorts of genre stuff, uh, romance comics and such he was working on West. He and Stan revamped the Rawhide Kid and the Two Gun Kid. They created a supernatural hi- hero called Doctor Droom, who um, who you know now as Doctor Druid. Love me some Doctor Druid. But these weren't, you know. But uh, of course the uh, and the thing that he was they seem to be most successful at doing at this period were the monster stories for the science fiction books. So this is when we get Fin Fang Foom. It's also when we get Groot, and uh, who had a bigger vocabulary back then. (laughs) Much bigger. Uh, There's, you know, it's always talked about Jack's output in the 60s uh, with the superhero books. How many he's doing at any given time. I'm curious, was it the same before, you know, Fantastic Four and those books started? Was he doing just as many uh, books in such a short period of time? What was the output like? Uh, I don't know what the exact output was in that period, but you also have to keep in mind that, again, this is sort of like the sad state that comics were in at this point, that um, Martin Goodman had lost his comics. Atlas was producing like over 70 books a month, I think. And it was amazing. I mean, it's a, but they lost their distributor. And Goodman had to make a deal with Independent News, which was the distributor connected with DC. Mm. And this was not a good thing because they set a limit on how many books they could do per month. So it was went from se- like over 70 to more 10 or under, I think. Oh my gosh. That few. That's wild. And so there... So, you know, Kirby was one of the main artists. But I mean, Kirby could do all ten books. <laughs> well, I suppose, I, I suppose, but Kirby was one of the main artists, sure. but you also had Steve Ditko there yeah. and a couple, couple of others, so he wasn't doing everything. However, uh, in the early years of the Marvel Age of Comics, Kirby was do- doing uh, an incredible amount of work 
and I understand that he could do up to five to six pages within 24 hours. I like hearing that and and looking at his the, the pages, you know, thinking about the quality and the inventiveness and the thought that goes into them, and then that number is just. Did he sleep? <laughs> Did well, well, that's it. There's two. Fa- there's a couple of factors that are at work here. What? I mean, again, he's a child of the depression, right? And so, and comics are not paying much at this point. In fact, they weren't paying much throughout his career, really. And so he had to do lots and lots of work to to feed his family. And uh, the and so, and he always has the specter of the depression hovering be, behind him. So. Um, there's that. He is very fast, but he also apparently could do like work steadily for like 10 to 16 hours a day and did often. Oh, and also I understand that he he didn't do like he didn't do like thumbnails beforehand or or, or practice sketches to sure. develop ca- characters. He just went right to it. So Which is makes it even more like amazing to think about that he didn't need to figure it out on a page. It was there. He right. just the the man's. You know, it's perfect. like like the Mi- Michelangelo statement about how when he was sculpting, he just, you know, the the figure's already in there. He just has to cut away everything that isn't the figure. Yeah. You know, it's but it's already there. <laughs> um, it's now by the time I started reading Marvels in the mid '60s, Jack had slowed down somewhat, which meant that he was doing all. He was only doing two and a half books a month, uh. which would be Fantastic Four, Thor, <laughs> and the Cap stories and Tales of Suspense. And so this was, I understand, like like 15 pages a week. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> 15 pages a week. He could, he could do 15 pages That's a week. Madness. And it's like, and, uh, but also when he wasn't doing quite as much work by the mid-60s, but still like way more than anybody else, yeah. it's, it's like... Uh, by that point, you could I, you could see a big shift in his art, around when F, Fantastic Four gets into like the forties, uh-huh. uh, you know the uh, the Inhumans and and the Galactus trilogy and so forth because he can spend more time on it, mm. even though he's still this this dynamo, and so that's when the the figures get bigger and more dynamic and when the backgrounds get more spectacular and when the costumes especially in Thor get more detailed yeah. and that's when what we think of as the mature Kirby style really happens I mean the earth you know Kirby's always you know like right from the days of Captain America in the 40s he had come up with this dynamic new style of drawing which if I wanted to be highfalutin about it, I could say it was an expressionistic style because it wasn't realistic. Right. You know, artists look at this and they say, there's no way that these bodies could actually work. He distorts anatomy so much, but you don't really notice because it's on the service of making them move powerfully and dynamically on the page. Yeah. But it's a, so there's always something special about Kirby's work. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think that like if you look at really early FF stories, it looks sort of not quite. I don't crude is the wrong word, yeah. but but it's not as good. Sure. It's not as polished. It's not as spectacular. Or as di- quite as dynamic as the stuff he was doing, you know, just a few years later, when again when like from FF maybe thirty eight thirty nine onward, right. and it's a. Uh, and also, it's around this period that 
Joe Sinnott becomes his anchor, and mm -hmm. that is such a perfect team. Yes. So where were we? We were back with the yes, we were back with the monster books in the very early sixties, and and so we have by this point point um, DC and editor Julie Schwartz have successfully revived superheroes as a genre. The Silver Age has begun, and the legend is that Martin Goodman was playing golf with somebody, maybe Jack Leibowitz from DC. And Leibowitz was boasting about the sales on Justice League. And now it turns out, from what I've read, that there's no, no, nobody can find any proof of this golf game. There's but no like score sheet or anything? No, no. And some people have actually theorized that Martin Goodman had double agents at DC <laughs> who are reporting to him. Uh, but he found out about the Justice League sales. Right. And so he took told Stan, well, we've got to create a superhero team. And this is and you know, this is a story I told in a previous podcast. But it's like this is when Stan and Jack got got together and created the Fantastic Four and magic begins. Magic begins indeed. So that would have been that was like This is nineteen sixty one. Sixty one. Uh do do you know about what part of sixty one that happens? I'm curious if how long the idea takes to gestate for this to for them to start coming up with Fantastic oh I, I have I have no idea how yeah. long because again it's sort of like nobody really right. quite knows where, where and when Martin Goodman found out about the Justice League yeah. sales so it's I don't know yeah and it's not like the internet and, where and, everything and, is on record and also exactly everything is on record now the thing that you young folks will find hard to believe now that you know comics are such a big deal in 21st century America is that way back when Nobody was keeping records of any of this <laughs> stuff. And, you know, and Stan and Jack both are like fam have famously bad memories. And it's like, so there's, so we're never going to know a whole lot of stuff about, about what happened back then, how exactly it came about. Right. And I, I mean, really, even when I was on staff, I mean, I was thinking this this morning, it's like, well, I went on all these plot conferences for the X-Men with Chris Claremont, we should have tape recorded them, <laughs> or, or Anne Nascenti, who was I was working for, should have had me take notes at least. Yeah, but but we didn't, and yeah. wouldn't it be wonderful to have them now? Sure. Um, so we're in 1961. Fantastic Four kickstarts things. What's the? How long does it take for them to realize? Oh gosh, this is this is it. This is where we need to go. And then more books start popping up, more ideas, and everything starts booming again. It was very, very fast because basically the the core heroes of the Marvel Universe were all created within four or five years. So you have the Fantastic Four were first, but and Daredevil first appears in 1864. So and uh, and I mean, if we throw in the Silver Surfer, that would be the year after that. Mm -hmm. So I mean, this is happening very, very quickly. Yeah. And it's like, um, I think the first ones after Fantastic Four were, were like Ant-Man and the Hulk. And I already explained that Hulk apparently is, is thought by some to be something of an autobiographical character for Jack because of inner dealing with inner rage. Um, but what I found out during research for this was that apparently Jack did not like Ant-Man. 
Mm. He was assi- Stan assigned him to do Ant-Man. He did not like it. He did not I think that it, you could identify with someone who had got, got as big as an ant. And so, and I'm thinking, well, maybe that's why, you know, the A, the Ant-Man stories, uh, early Ant-Man stories aren't on the same level, shall we say, as mm-hmm. early FF stories. And maybe it's also why Ant-Man so quickly turned into Giant-Man. <laughs> But it's yeah um, that that wasn't very it didn't take very long at all no but it's apparently uh, Jack did not this is one character that Jack did at Marvel that he did not like <laughs> and um, no that came, came along Spider Man fa- I mean. Spider Man and of course and you know to some extent you know J- Jack was co-creating a whole bunch of these early characters it's like and. The influence goes even beyond the ones that the, the series where he was actually draw, drawing it, and of course, you know, co-plotting it with Stan. It's um, because I understand that he had um, he design he didn't draw the first Iron Man story, but he designed Iron Man's original armor. It's uh, apparently in the er- in the early di- early sixties, he would often J- Kirby would o- o- often design the cover for books that he did not actually draw. And in the process, he would design like super villains or, or supporting characters that then the artist who drew the actual story would follow. When you say design, you mean, was there a step that he added to those? other Because a lot of them he was also drawing, right? No, what I'm saying is that with a covers for a lot of books, apparently, say it's I don't know if maybe it's like a Don Hecktails, a suspense Iron Man story that that if Jack Kirby was doing the cover and apparently he was doing it before the story was drawn, and so if they come up, St- Stan comes up with a new villain, that it might be Kirby who's the one who first, first draws the villain for the cover and hence designs the character, yeah, visually then- designs the character, and you know, you know there are cases at Marvel in Marvel history where the artist who first draws the character in a story is not actually the guy who designed him. Mm-hmm. Like John Romita Sr. is the guy who designed, visually designed the Punisher and Wolverine, mm-hmm. even though he didn't draw their original stories. Right. Um, apparently, and again, this is, this is very unclear because no one was keeping records, and Stan and Jack have bad memories, and Bill Everett had his problems at the time, but apparently he had something to do with the first issue of Daredevil mm-hmm. in terms of apparently he contributed something towards design, helping design the costume with Everett. We know for we know pretty definitely that he designed the Billy Club. And there's some some thought that he may have helped plot that the first Daredevil story, and which would sort of make sense the the Hell's Kitchen yeah. environment, but it's like uh, but nobody knows for sure. Right. So Kirby had his and everywhere uh, he was originally assigned to do Spider-Man sto- the first Spider-Man story but um, apparently his version of Spider-Man what Spider-Man resembled a character that he had been doing with Joe Simon called the Fly mm-hmm. who's a guy with a magic ring who gets an insect a kid who turns into an adult with insect powers through this magic ring and uh, Stan didn't like it so they, Stan created the and Steve Ditko created the version of Spider-Man we know, but Kirby ended up drawing the, for the cover for Amazing yeah. Fantasy 15. So Kirby's hands was pretty much not just the characters he helped create. He, he definitely helped co- co-create like Hulk and Thor and 
Avengers, the X-Men, and the Fantastic Four, mm -hmm. but also he was helping out with these other characters, too. Yeah. You mentioned that he didn't like Ant-Man, but doing Apparently. is there records of who his favorite characters were that he who was working on? His fa well, it seems that his favorite characters were The Thing, mm -hmm. among his favorite characters were Captain America, The Thing, Nick and Nick Fury, and a couple of people, characters over at DC I probably shouldn't mention. Uh, but it's, um, and I came across this quote that he looked upon the thing as, he saw Ben Grimm as the thing as representing what he thought people thought he was like. <laughs> and he said, it, and it is true, we do, it is true that he, that he and Ben thought alike and they had the same sort of reactions to things. And he looked upon Nick Fury as sort of what he what he wanted to be, his mm. idealized version of himself. So as I was saying before we started recording, does this mean that Jack Kirby envisioned himself as Samuel L. Jackson? <laughs> well gosh. But uh, but yeah, but you know, and you know, subsequent subsequently in the Nick in the Sergeant Fury series it was established that, you know, Cap well Cap uh, grew up on the Lower East Side like Kirby. Nick Fury grew up on the Lower East Side sure. like Kirby. I don't think, however, that Jack Kirby had an evil brother named Scorpio. <laughs> so, uh, records though, we don't know. We don't know all the records of the time. Anything is possible. Uh, so, at, at what point does Jack leave Marvel in the sixties, or uh, is it the? Uh, I think he leaves in nineteen seventy. Seventy. Uh, so, what were those later part? The later part of the sixties. What was? You know, had the output still been two and a half? Uh... Well, I think he was basically still doing like. Well, when I started reading Marvel in the mid '60s, it was he was doing two and a half books, and then Captain America eventually got his own title, so that was three books again. And Jack stopped doing Cap after after a while, but he was he would do other things like there was an an, an Humans story and uh, Amazing Adventures, I think. Okay. Series and I think he did the the very first issue of, or maybe that was, those amazing adventures and astonishing tales. The two new split books and Kirby d worked on Inhuman Story and he also started the Kazar series, um, at one of them, um, but um, and as we know um, through the Marvel method of storytelling that Stan had wor worked up, which he gave a lot. When you had he had someone like Jack Kirby, he gave, you know they would come up with a basic plot together, uh, either in a plot conference or on the phone. Uh, but he would leave a lot of the actual details, you know, for Kirby to work out. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and Kirby was so gifted at this that he got to do more and more of the stories. But again, Stan and Jack together doing the basic frame. Right. Now towards the um, end of the '60s. It seems that not only was Kirby sort of frustrated that you know he wanted to be doing the writing the stories himself, again at least getting credit for more credit than he was getting for sure. for his plot contributions. Apparently, his last year at Marvel, and you can tell from like the later issues of the Fantastic Four, like at the '90s issue ninety through a hundred, say, mm -hmm. where uh, he's no longer coming up with. A lot of new char characters. They tend to be. Oh, apparently it, the publishers had decided that there was a 
no more continued stories, so you see a lot of one-issue stories. And they tend to be, the stories in this period tend to be you know, comparatively forgettable. Sure. And that's because Kirby's not happy with Marvel. Kirby is secretly negotiating with DC. Kirby is saving new character ideas for DC for when he goes over there. And he went to DC for a while. Good for yeah. And created the New God series, you know, which classic on its own. Yeah, I, just thinking about that though, what you had said that he was holding these ideas and holding these characters to do, you know, to take them when because he couldn't get them here. Can you imagine his New Gods concepts and characters and those ideas being introduced into the Marvel universe? Well, folks, and here's something you uh, you probably don't know: there was a point in the 1980s when there was talk that Warners was going to basically shut down DC and license the characters to Marvel to do. And I was in on an editorial meeting that Jim Shooter had held, and it was, well, if we get the DC characters, I think we should like do like, I don't know, maybe it was seven books a month. And which ones should we do? And I was one of the people who was supporting a New Gods book. So it could have <laughs> happened. It could have happened. But uh, I understand. what I'd heard at the time was that it was Ted Turner who was pushing for getting rid of DC and licensing the characters to, wow. out. But, of course, it didn't. None yeah. of this happened. But, gee, now that there's an alternate reality for you. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to wrap my head around that one. That'd yeah. Crazy. Well, you never heard that one before. I have then. not heard oh. that. One. And um, like, and of course, we should cover the fact that you know, think uh, even though Kirby created a lot of classic stuff at DC, he none, all of which is back in print now. It seems um, things weren't working out at DC because his books kept getting canceled. DC really wasn't supporting them. It's unclear whether they were really selling poorly or whether DC had other reasons for yeah. getting rid of them. I remember seeing, um, it might have been in one of the, the Jack Kirby magazines you mentioned, a reprint of an ad that DC, you know, series of ads DC was running prior to Kirby, the, the launch of those books of like, Kirby's coming, you know, the king is coming, those really cool bombastic ads. It looked like they were giving it a, a push mm-hmm. before it happened. And it just, it's wild to me that it, it it didn't last. How many years was he at DC? Three, four, That's maybe? Right. I think he had a three-year contract. Uh-huh. But it's like, um, you know, and it's sort of odd, because even though he'd worked at DC before, DC, again, this is way different than it is now at DC, but... DC back then, it was, you know, guys who'd been there since the 40s, and the Kirby's, you know, they were they were scratching their heads trying to figure out why Marvel was selling so well mm. in the 60s. I mean, the Carmine Infantino, when he became publisher, brought, who was an artist himself, brought Kirby over. But it's like, um, but a lot of people like um, at DC, they didn't really understand the Marvel style. They didn't understand why those books were selling. They thought they would, they thought they, the art was ugly. <laughs> It's like they did, and so it's sort of so maybe from that point of view, it makes it sort of makes sense that Kirby didn't find at DC such a comfortable place to mm. be after all. Right, the that, grass is always greener until you find out it's not. Oh, and at this point, uh, like Kirby was one, 
even though back then you basically had to be in New York to work in the comics industry, Kirby was one of the first people who who was working off California because even before the internet, we had the mail. <laughs> and so he was in uh, California, Southern California by this point, um, sending stuff in. But anyway, so things weren't working out at, D at DC, so he came back to Marvel where I, he took over work, working on the Captain America series where he... Um, creating some new concepts, like Arnim Zola, a yeah. character who's lasted. He did the uh, took over a Black Panther series, and he cre created some new stuff. The last great Kirby series, to my mind, which is the Eternals, mm. which is like one of the one of the best uh, incarnations of Kirby's career-long theme of these godlike beings who work walk among humans human beings and fight forces the evil the good gods who fight the evil gods with right. mankind stuck in the middle and um, and what the nature of God is so you have the celestials as these enigmatic divine stand-ins for God just like you know who are in the line of going back to the Galactus trilogy where where you know Galactus and the watcher can be regarded as different aspects of God I think mm -hmm. and whether he intended, whether Stan and Jack intended Galactus originally to be like this e evil god with a capital G, it's unclear, but I've come across a quote of Kirby later on saying, oh yeah, that's what I meant, and the, and the Silver Surfer is a fallen angel. And But anyway, so you got the Eternals, you've got Devil Dinosaur, which is a fun book. Oh, so good. Um, you've got, um, and he, you've got adaptations that he did. He yeah. was Marvel got the rights of 2001 A Space Odyssey so Jack did new stories about that and that's where and in the course of that book I mean Marvel only had the rights to about, about to, to that series for about a year but that's what Machine Man came out of and also um, he started Kirby started work on an, writing and drawing an adaptation of the classic TV series The Prisoner which had already been sort of an unstated influence on a famous Fantastic Four storyline mm. a few years before. And there are some surviving pages if you, you know, you can look in the Jack Kirby, back issues of the Jack Kirby Collector and see them and they're, they're pretty good and pretty interesting. Yeah. And he was also doing covers all over the place for Marvel at that point. And again, Kirby was longing to be, you know, get, get things that, you know, people should have had back then, like health insurance from the company and so forth. But, uh, but he wasn't getting any of these be any benefits from from Marvel, and so he left again. But this time, being based in California, he went into animation, where he was do where he'd do storyboards, where he'd do character designs, yeah. where he'd where, for example, he collaborated with. Um, he worked on uh, the Thunder the Barbarian series, which Steve Gerber co-created. Um, he ended up working with Stan again on the. The Patty Freeling Fantastic Four animated series. You you can find st storyboards in print that Kirby did based on old Fantastic Four stories, um, and uh, people in animation uh, tr treated him very well. And uh, toward later in his career, he started when independent comics started g going. He he went in. In for them, like things like Captain Victory and Silver Star. Although, I don't, to my mind anyway, his comics were 
his later comics were, like I said, Eternals was the last great series. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad to have the Kirby series of the 80s, but it's like I think that, like I, like I said, I think this, this great period, period with superhero comics is, apart from Craig and Cap, of course, it's the 60s and then the 70s ending with the Eternals. Sure. You mentioned uh, when we're talking about 2001, he, if I remember correctly, was experimenting a lot with doing a lot of cool different styles and different uh, elements as, as he did in fanta- a lot of the Fantastic Oh, yeah, the photo, stuff. his photo collage stuff, which yeah. is amazing, uh, usually used for doing uh, outer space scenes and goes way, way back early Fantastic Four issues, you can find those. Yeah. And it's sort of like use through photo, photographic collages creating effects that I would compare to Ditko's surreal other dimensional scenes in Doctor Strange. Yeah. Well, did was there any talk of where that comes from? Like what sparked that for him? Is just is it just what how he wanted to tell those stories, or was there I, something I guess that influenced I guess, him specifically? I guess he was just. I don't know if, any, if there are specific influences. I mean, obviously, he's not the first person to do photo collage, right. but it's like, but you know, this. But I haven't come across any reference to influences, so I guess he's just experimenting on his own. But sometimes, you know, I don't think there's been enough work on this. Sometimes I I wonder about whether there's stuff about influences on Jack Kirby's art that we really just don't know about. Mm. Like, like, I think it's fairly well known now that the face of the demon, sorry, a DC character... One of my all-time favorite characters. ...was borrowed from a sequence from Hal Foster's Prince Valiant. Mm. Now, here's another story none of you have heard before. <laughs> when I was doing my first hardcover book about Marvel, Marvel Universe, I came... Ac- and I was picking out art for it. I came across this drawing that... Kirby did for Fantastic Four Annual Number Four, I think, which is uh, the original Human Torch fighting the new Human Torch, and the pose of the original Human Torch—he's throwing a fireball—looked recognizable to me. And I was talking to my editor at Abrams about this, and I said, "I know where this comes from." And we got out a book that they had there of paintings in the National Gallery in London. And there's a Titian painting called Bacchus and Ariadne. And the god Bacchus is in the exact same pose. Mm. And I'm thinking, is this a coincidence? (laughs) Or is Jack looking at Renaissance Italian art? Or when I saw like this, um, I think it was a Macedonian helmet at the Metropolitan Museum of Art years ago, which looks an awful lot like Magneto's helmet, <laughs> so which also resembles except resembles uh, the helmet from uh, Sergei Eisenstein's film Alexander Nevsky that the bad guys wear, except that one has sort of like these horn things, which is sort of uh, as well, though those are sort of rem- reminiscent of those strange sort of horn things that come out of Galactus's helmet. So it may, Interesting. you know, this. I wonder. If there's, you know, like think Kirby's looking at, we know he was looking at a lot of art by other comic book artists of his generation, uh, that the great comic book artists of the newspaper strips when he was coming along, like Foster and Alex Raymond and Milton Kniff. Uh, when I look at his Simon Kirby's early 40s stuff, I often think of Kniff. 
But I'm wondering, you know, is there was he looking at high art too, and we just don't know about it, or how often did he do that? Mm. It's uh, I don't know. Yeah, wouldn't I, be surprising. I mean, he. Or is it just so coincidence? Much. I think of Kirby as, you know, it's, you know, it's said that he wasn't good in interviews. I interviewed him once, and it, actually, he he was he was very friendly and pleasant, and very, and everything he said was very logical and enlightening. But uh, I've heard he's not he was wasn't good at expressing himself, putting, th- especially if it, if you didn't know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting things into words and that's uh, in interviews and I get the impression from what I've read about him that he's what I would call an instinctual genius that maybe he couldn't like describe in great depth and detail what he was getting at but he knew it it was just there it was just there Yeah. and it comes out in his work and in fact I think if I had to name a genius in comic book art, I think he's the only one I'm sure of is a genius. Oh, without hesitation, for sure. Because of this immense creativity in coming up with brilliant concepts, in coming up with a whole new way of drawing comic book art, comics art, and this font of creativity for stories and characters that just and for art design that just went on for decades and decades. Yeah, and, and, and to extent, even though he had influences in, from other artists, was sui generis. It was he was one of a kind. It was like, and you know that, and he is responsible for the Marvel, the classic Marvel art style that when, when, that Stan would tell artists when in the '60s when they came to work for Marvel, even if he, if it was someone like Gil Kane who was already like, well, the top artist at DC, he wants them to study Kirby to learn from Kirby, that people like John Romita Sr. and Jim Steranko, when they first started doing superhero, or in Steranko's case, S.H.I.E.L.D. artwork at Marvel, they were doing it over Kirby's layouts at first to learn from Kirby. It's like, you know, he's... He, if, if Stan created the house style in terms of writings, Jack created the house style in terms of art, and it's together, that's what makes the Marvel revolution. It's like it's more the Marvel Revolution is Stan and Jack together. It is the it is together is greater than what they did together is greater than the sum the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Sure. Um so before we wrap up, uh what is your favorite Marvel creation of Jack's? Oh gee. <laughs> there's I mean and that's a tough one because there's so much Doctor Doom. Without hesitation. There you go, Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom, although Oh, again, co-creation of Jack. co-creation of Jacks because it's not just that great visual of Doctor Doom and the to, and the extent to which he Kirby gave him his personality and his and his background, but also of course Stan the wonderful speeches that Stan wrote for him. But if you want, what is my favorite Jack creation that he did all by himself at Marvel? It's Cersei in the Eternals. Mm. Because she is so, she is so delightful. She is so <laughs> much fun, um, and uh, a strong, independent female character. I mean, there are things about Kirby's work. At some, t- I look at some things that Kirby did. And it's like he's 
He's coming up with things that became sort of like standard things in the industry just before everybody else hit on to them. So it's like Big Barter was the, was doing stand Jack was doing Big Barter at DC before She-Hulk. <laughs> or sorry to be mentioning these DC characters, but Orion at DC in the New God series, who the warrior who has to fight off his darker animalistic side. That's Wolverine a few years before. I'm not saying that the later characters were directly inspired by them, but it's like Kirby is doing this stuff. Right. You know, and when you so when you've got like characters like Thena and Cersei, you know, these uh in the Eternals, it's like, you know, even though in the early sixties, you know, a Jack Kirby Stanley superheroine one was was Sue Storm in her early phase of, you know, basically her superpower being to hide and turn invisible, you know, back back before you really had feminist superheroines. But by the seventies, Jack is doing these strong female. You know, Thena is a woman warrior, introduced as a woman warrior. Cersei is, she's she's fun to be with. She's she she's great at throwing parties, but she's also Cersei the terrible, and you don't want to be a deviant who gets on her bad right. deviant being the race Jack created, yeah. who gets on her bad side. So it's like. Uh, it's uh, and all, and like I said, all through his career, you've got these, this fascination he has with these godlike beings. Whether it's like representations of God with a big G, like the Watcher, or or the Celestials, or whether it's these sort of like characters who are halfway between man and God. Whether it's so you've got, and you've got the good superheroes versus the bad superheroes. You've got the good mutants versus the bad mutants in X-Men. You've got the good in humans versus the bad in humans. You've got the good Asgardians versus Loki and the forces of mm. evil. You've got the new gods of, of New Genesis against the new gods of Apocalypse. You've got the Eternals against the Deviants. You've got uh, and he's continual. Yeah, I've, I've seen in my research I've come across people saying, well, what was Jack's favorite genre to work in? And because he worked in pretty much every, every comics genre, but it's and I like Mark Evanier's theory is that he really liked the, the war books best because he could draw on his own wartime experience. But the superhero books, it seems to me, are very personal to him. Whether it's characters like Thing or Nick Fury, or whether it's or whether it's this again this constant, continual exploration of what it means to be a god and what it means to be man and in comparison to God, uh, or the the potential for godhood within a man. Yeah. And it's like, this is, whether he's doing it on his own or with, with collaboration with Stan, it's, it seems to me his superhero work is very, very much a personal expression of, of, of his person. It's an expression of his personality, not just the drawing, but in terms of the plots and characterization yeah. and, and themes. Those make some really good stories, mm -hmm. and we're thankful for them. Uh, Peter, where uh, where can fans find you online? Where can fans find me online? I have a um, I have a Twitter feed uh, under my name. I have two Facebook fa pages, one for fans fans and one for one for uh, friends. But you have to send a message introducing <laughs> yourself, so I know you're not a troll or a robot or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I also have. A page on uh, from Sequat, the publisher of 
uh, literary criticism books about comics because I'm working on a book for them. And cool. there will be a chapter about Kirby's work in the 80s in it. Nice. The Hunger Dogs specifically, Ooh. which I think is way better than most people think it is. Okay. And also I've got pages on Amazon and Goodreads that list um, the book, various books are written or contributed over the years. And if you're good at using Google, you might be able to track down some of my old blogs in which I write about all sorts of comics-related subjects. Cool. And what are some of the great Kirby resources you suggest uh, if fans want to learn more on their own? Uh, Mark Evanier's book for Harry and Abrams, Inc., Kirby King of Comics. Mark was Jack's assistant, his lifelong hit, well, friend since they met each other, first met each other right. till the end of his life. And his biographer said, "This is the best. This is the best single book about Kirby, his work and his life, um, full of pictures." Um, the Jack Kirby Collector, published by Tomorrow's, uh, which is an ongoing magazine full of where you'll see published and unpublished art by Kirby, articles about him, panel transcripts of panels about Kirby. Get to see a lot of original art pages, some of them b before they were inked. Uh, but, of course, the best possible resource is to look at Kirby stories themselves. And virtually everything that he's done in comics is now back in print, whether it's from Marvel or from DC or from other companies as well. Yeah. So it's like, um, so consult your local comic book store, or even better these days, your local library. Yeah. Uh, because I'm so, if only when I was growing up, well, when I was growing up, I could get to read Pogo collections in my <laughs> local library, but if only they had had like the best of, best of uh, Kirk, Jack Kirby comics back then too. Yeah, but now cool. they do in libraries. Yeah. So you know, look at the real, look at the original stuff, and you know, it's soak it in. Cause so, it's just soak, soak it in. It amazing. is, it is classic. It is for the ages. Yes. Well said. Uh, also, check out uh, KirbyForHeroes.com, which is uh, Jack's granddaughter, Jillian. Uh, it's, it's a charity that they're doing, and we're really excited. We're, we're trying to help them out and want to make sure everybody knows. So check them out, and uh, we'll be back with more uh, this week in Marvel soon. This is Marvel, Kirby's Universe.